Amen. Thank you, Tim. Church, let's begin by praying, going to the Lord. Well, Father, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit this morning to work in all of our hearts. Lord, may your preach word bring conviction that leads to repentance, that leads to change. I pray that you would open blind eyes and soften hard hearts. I pray you would do this for your sovereign purpose. Pray that you would use this weak and needy vessel this morning for your glory. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Well, Trinity, it is a privilege to bring God's word to you this morning. And for our guests, my name is Rick. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity Community Church. And thank you for joining in with us on live stream. I'd also like to give a little shout out to Mac and Lou, my partners at work. Thank you guys for joining in, and I look forward to our discussion tomorrow over coffee at the Wawa. So last week, Tim, our lead pastor, um, completed chapter 40. So what I'd like to do is start this morning with just a quick snapshot of last week. God's people, they are exiled in Babylon, and they are defeated, they're bittered, they're disillusioned. And in fact, they think that God has failed them. Isaiah 40, verse 27 says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. As Tim said last week, the Jews Isaiah is writing to, they are at a breaking point. They are in total desperation well, here is where we pick up this morning in our text, in chapter 41 and the first part of chapter 42, in which I believe the main idea is Isaiah reassuring Judah, and I believe us this morning, that God is sovereign over all of history, assuring us to fear not, for he is with us and has given believers a full pardon, which causes us to sing a new song. Now, chapter 41 starts out like a court scene with God presenting his case that he is the one and only true God. Verse 1 says, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach and then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Now, the NIV translates the end of that verse like this. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. So in other words, court is in session. And the most honorable judge is God who is presiding. Now, I've been in many court cases, and I've been on both the winning and the losing side. Now, I believe in our justice system, but I'm aware it is not a perfect system. But this case, God himself is presenting. So who's on trial? 
Well, the so-called gods and their representatives, and if we rightly look at ourselves, we are included in that. And who's the intended audience? Or we could say, who's in the gallery? Well, Israel, and I believe each and every one of us this morning. Now, remember, I said I believe in our justice system, but it's not perfect. We present flawed witnesses, flawed juries, flawed law enforcement officers. Yes, Andrew, everyone's well, a flawed attorney and flawed judges. Now, attorneys will tell you that when you go to court, you can never predict the outcome. You might think you've got an open and shut case and the jury comes back with a not guilty verdict. So here's the difference in this case. God is a prosecutor, the judge and the jury. You see, there is never any doubt of the outcome or the verdict in this case. God summons the court, makes a case, and declares four verdicts. Now, in God's opening arguments, he, bring, he begins by showing that he is sovereign over all of history. God will show that he activates history and that he will, use he will use Israel to demonstrate to the world that he is a sole Lord of history. So the first verdict, God is sovereign over all of history. I believe we see this in Isaiah 41, 1 through 7. Now keep in mind, chapter 40 equals God is sovereign. Now Isaiah is driving home this point. God is challenging the nations to decide something based on the evidence of his actions. You see, all that the Jews have to do in us also is to see God's actions in history. So exhibit A, God's actions in history. Now, it would be an impossibility to submit into evidence all of God's actions in the history. So here is what I will submit to the court. Not only has God been judging the nations and ruling the rulers on this earth, but he called all the nations into being. God is the first, the uncreated first, and he will be there with the last when all is accomplished according to his eternal purpose. Exhibit B, Cyrus the Great. And I submit into evidence to the court, verse 2. Who stirred up the one from the east whom victory, victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. 150 years before it happened, God used Isaiah to predict that Cyrus the Great would conquer Babylon, setting God's people free. God will use whomever he wills, and he will make kings like dust. In this case, he used Cyrus's sword to accomplish his plan. So who was Cyrus? Well, one of his many titles was king of the four corners of the world. Now, Cyrus' um, empire would have encompassed 44% of the global population, the largest percentage of any empire prior or since. So what happened to this great king? Well, there are several stories surrounding the death of Cyrus. According to the Greek historian Herodias, Legend has it that during his campaign in the east, Cyrus was defeated and killed by Tamiris, a woman leader of the Massagete people, to avenge the death of her son. Is God sovereign? You bet he is. You see, church, God is a great stirrer, 
of the events in history. He is doing it moment by moment. God is accomplishing his redemptive plan in this world in which we live. Exhibit C, I, the Lord, and I submit it to evidence for the court. Verse four, who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Now, the word Lord here is Jehovah or Yahweh. Now, this communicates God's self-existence, independence, self-sufficiency, eternality, and unchanging character. The Westminster Confession of Faith affirms that God from all eternity did by the most, most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Church, Cyrus's, your life or my life is not a fluke. You can depend on that. So let's ask a few questions. Do things just happen or is God at work? Is it chance or is it providence? Is history occurring in cycles or is history taking us towards a final consummation? Is the meaning of our lives up to us alone or are we part of a larger story? Consider this. When we're going through difficult times, how do you typically respond? Can you respond like the Jews in Isaiah, thinking that God has failed you? Or cry out to God, God, where are you? Well, let's take a look and see how the nations responded to God. We see that in verse 5 through 7. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so it cannot be moved. You can hear the anxiety and fright. In their anxiety and fright, they turn to each other, and then they turn to their idols. They even try to strengthen their idols with nails. Well, back in March, there was a children's celebration scheduled that was, was supposed to include a dramatic reading about the life of St. Patrick. Even though we had to cancel it as a result, I came across a story from his manuscripts I'd like to share with you this morning. When Patrick felt called to return to Ireland where he was enslaved, the writing says that he was anxious to go without delay to visit the man who bought him at age 16 to be a slave and bring him the price of his freedom and in this way, after all, convert him to the faith of Christ. Miluk the Druid heard that his slave Patrick was about to come and see him in order to make him accept, forcefully as it were, a way of life against his will at the end of his days. For fear he might be subject to his slave and the latter might become his master, the devil put it into his mind to seek death of his own free will and of fire. He gathered all of his wealth together in the palace where he lived until, where he lived until, until then and burnt himself along with it. Church, what is an idol to you? Now, are you thinking of only images or figurines or a primitive culture? An idol are things that we turn to. 
things that we run to. There are things that we devote ourselves to. John Calvin said the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Church idolatry is a human problem, it is a modern problem, and yes, it is a Christian problem. God's word makes that clear. We can see that in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14, or 1 John 5, 21, just to name a couple. So we need to ask ourselves, are we shoring up or reinforcing our idols rather than trusting God who is sovereign over all of history? God, who is sovereign over all of history, now gives us his second verdict. God bears our burdens, so fear not. I believe we see that in Isaiah 41, 8 through 20. And in this verdict, God offers to the court three assurances. The first assurance is that we are important to God, so fear not. Verse 8 says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Now, Isaiah is making a contrast here. On one hand, you have the nations nervously propping up their helpless, homemade saviors. On the other hand, the sovereign of the universe who chooses us, upholds us with his unfailing, righteous right hand. What do you choose? To fortify your idols or to fortify yourself with a clear awareness of God? Church, may we choose the one and only true God. When times are hard, during times of suffering, we need a clear understanding of who our God is. So how do we do that? Well, we dig into God's word. We prayerfully study it. This book is God revealing himself to us. We live in a troubled, fallen world. And just as Isaiah and God's word is reassuring the Jews exiled in Babylon, Isaiah is reassuring us that God is at work. His glorious salvation is coming, and he is moving everything towards that goal. You need hope? You'll find it in this book, God's word. Verse 9. You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from the farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. That is what God has done for us in Christ. He chose us. Get this. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He called us out of darkness and death and he took us for himself to be his. He, he makes himself our God. If you're a believer this morning, he called you, he chose you, and he will keep you. Now let's look at the end of verse 8, because I don't want you to miss this. It says, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. John 15, 14 through 15 says, you are my friend if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I call you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Church, in the Old Testament, only Abraham and by implication Moses 
are called friends of God. Here, Jesus extends that privilege to all obedient believers. The eternal, omnipotent creator of the universe, the judge, calls us friends. That should absolutely amaze us. Church, we also need to hear that Christ's work on the cross is not merely that our sins be forgiven and that we have eternal life, but also that our lives be fruitful and productive in fulfilling God's purpose. So may I submit to you verse 16a, when John goes on to say, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. So church, may we go and bear fruit. Now we do this not to earn our salvation, but because Christ earned it for us. You see, church, our obedience to Christ doesn't, doesn't earn Christ's love. It's because of Christ's love for us. Now we get to verse 10. Now this is a verse I can find myself repeating often throughout my day. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Because of our relationship with Christ, we do not need to fear anything. Now, this is not positive thinking. It's not casting off negative thoughts. Have you ever shared a situation with somebody and they go, you know, I will be thinking positive thoughts for you. I don't even know what that would look like. Church, we can fear not. We can take courage because our God is with us. Our God is the great I am. He is the one and only who is self-existent, complete in himself. That is who has given himself to be our God. So fear not. What do you fear today? Do you fear sickness, COVID-19? Relationships, being hurt again in your relationship. Loss of your job, could it be loss of a loved one? I know at times I can battle with the fear of the future. Church, the one who is eminently present indwelling within us is with us. God will strengthen us, he will help us, and he will uphold us. 1 Peter 1, uh, verses 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen to this, church. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded, you're being guarded through faith for the salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. When we tend to fear the future. God's word tells us that we have an inheritance that is, imperish, is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Our inheritance is protected. It is untouchable. So we can fear not. Your future, listen to this, is absolutely secured. When I'm going through a trial or if I'm suffering, I don't need positive thoughts. I need my brothers and sisters and Christ to remind me of who God is and to fear not. 
no matter how hard it is right here, right now, fear not. For your God is with you and he has your future secured. Verse 13 goes on to say, for I, the Lord, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. God has you firmly in his hand. And that leads me to the second assurance. We are to live humbly, but courageously for our God. So fear not. Now, verse 14 starts out like this. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. Worm. I can see the defense attorney jumping up beyond. I object. What do you mean, worm? Is God calling his servant, his chosen one, his beloved, a worm? Then God, the judge, responds with objection overruled. You see, church, we, the worm, we're unclean, we're unrighteous, unacceptable to God. I submit to you Psalms 22, verse 6, where the psalmist cries out, I am a worm and no man, scorned by men and despised by the people. The focus here is not on the condition of filth, but it's on how worms were treated. You see, Israel was being beat down in captivity by his enemies. Israel was despised and scorned. So why did this happen? Well, Israel acted like a worm. The heart of Israel was corrupted with pride and arrogance and self-exaltation. Church, the evidence is clear. God is God. God made us. God alone is to be honored and lifted up in the world. God's power is unmatched by anything. His authority is absolute over everything. So the evidence is overwhelming as to why God calls Israel a worm. But if we are tempted to object to being called a worm ourselves, let's take a look at how that relates to us. Paul says in Romans 3, 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So let every mouth be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Church, what is true of Israel is true of us. Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not some, but all, not one of us listening this morning is worthy. Every one of us are without excuse. Romans 7.24, wretched man that I am. Who? will deliver me from this body of death. Well, the good news of the Bible is not that we're not worms, but that God helps worms who trust in him. Isaiah 41 verse 14 continues to say, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. When we view ourselves rightly, we see our great need for a savior. There is none righteous. No, not one. So if you are a non-believer this morning, you have not put your trust in Christ. God will see your filthiness or your worminess and you will be separated from God for eternity. 
Now, for those who have put their trust in Christ, and I pray for the non-believer this morning, that by the end of the, the message this morning, you will be in that group. Christ came, paid our debt in full. God is holy. We, we are helpless sinners, worms. On that day, when we stand before the judge, God will not see our filthiness, but we'll see Christ's finished work on the cross. We'll see Christ's righteousness. That is amazing grace. Ephesians 2, 8 says, for by grace you have been saved, and this is not your own this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And listen to this, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Church, in our own strength, we are a weak bunch. But that's okay. Tim mentioned this last week. That's a good place to be. Because in our weakness, he will reveal himself to us as strong. God triumphs amid human weakness. So let's look at the evidence presented in Isaiah 41, 15 through 16. Behold, I make you a threshing sledge, a new sharp and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away. The tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. So what is a threshing sledge? Well, it's a frame holding two heavy rollers, and embedded in these rollers are pieces of metal and stone. And these two rollers are dragged around by an animal over some, a pile of cut grain until the kernels are separated from the husk. God made a worm, a new sharp threshing sledge. Whatever obstacle stood in Israel's way and whatever stands in our way will be swept away as swiftly as a strong wind sweeps a chaff from a winnowing fork. Second Corinthians 4, 7 says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So what does it mean, jars of clay? Well, it's a common metaphor in ancient times for human weakness. Like I said, we're a weak punch. But nothing is able to prevent God from carrying out his plan. And the amazing thing about it, church, is he uses us. And that leads me to the third assurance. God is life-giving, so fear not. Verse 17 says... When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Church, verse 17 through 20 is telling us that the Lord is a prayer-answering God. When we seek God in prayer, God answers with the greatest gift in the universe himself. God is able to take that which is barren and unproductive, the human soul, and make it fertile and fruitful. So let's look at the beginning of verse 17. When the poor and needy seek water, do you view yourself as poor and needy? Or are you believing that you're self-sufficient? 
I know when I go into my self-sufficiency mode, a lot of worry and anxiety can invade my thinking. And if I'm honest with myself during those times, it's directly tied to lack of prayer. Church, our Lord longs to bless those who bring their needs to him. So are you a warrior? Do you find yourself saying a lot that you have anxiety? Seek God's help in prayer. And also prayerfully study God's word. As was mentioned during the announcements, dig into the attributes of God. When we come poor and needy to God, get this, we get mercy upon mercy upon mercy, and God rightfully gets the glory. If we are relying on our own strength, our own wisdom, or even worse yet, the world's wisdom, we must repent, and we must turn and look to Christ alone. If we're not trusting in Christ alone, then what are we trusting in? And that leads me to the third verdict, and the only guilty verdict of the four. God declares our so-called gods and their representatives guilty. I believe we see this in Isaiah 41, 21 through 29. Let's look at verses 21 through 23. God cross-examines the so-called gods. Set forth their case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. As Patrick called to the Druid barbarian to repent and believe in Christ, the Druid as a druid was burning in the fire, it was said that you could hear him screaming prayers to his false God in order to drown out Patrick's words. After God cross-examines, there is silence from all the so-called gods. Then the judge responds in verse 24. Behold, you are nothing. Your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. The Bible attacks idols aggressively. Christ is serious about being our happiness, but we tend to gravitate towards whatever we believe or what the world tells us will make us happy. Like Juan Hernandez said some months ago, we're a dumb sheep with our head buried in the grass, not knowing we're about ready to be devoured. Church, we can stuff ourselves with counterfeit pleasures and then wonder why we can be so unhappy at times. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the name, is the, is the man who takes refuge in him. What are we taking refuge in? If we're trying to find happiness in anything besides the Lord, it is a delusion. It is a flat-out lie. God is the only one who will bring us true happiness. Think about it. It is so important that God made it the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. 
Exodus 20, verse 3. You see, if we give ourselves to God alone, it's easier to obey the other nine commandments. Verse 25 through 29 is God saying, I'm behind it all. I declared it all ahead of time. I raised up Cyrus. I prepared to deliver, and I declared that fact to Zion. The point is that all, small, all gods, small g, they're worthless. God is saying your delusion with idols is mere foolishness. They are worthless and helpless. So church, we have the one whose worth is immeasurable, whose power is unlimited, and that leads me to the fourth and final verdict. God alone is worthy and worthy to be praised. I believe we see that in verse, chapter 42, verse 1 through 17. Like I said at the beginning of this message, I believe in our justice system, but it's far from perfect. At times, justice is not served. The guilty person may go free, leaving the, the victimized party in despair, or an innocent person is unjustly convicted. Church, on this earth, there will never be real justice. Of all the world's different governments and rulers who have attempted to set up justice on this earth, all have failed. Some tried through brute force, and others have tried through social justice. None have succeeded but Christ, the gentle servant, will bring justice to the nations. In the first four verses of chapter 42, we need to notice that the word justice is used three times. That should catch our attention. Let's take a look at that. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. God's answer to the oppressors of the world is not more oppression or to the arrogant, more arrogance, rather in quietness, humility, and simplicity. He will take all the evil into himself and return only grace. Now that is real power. That is true power. Patrick stood over the, the remains at the funeral pile of the king. Stunned by this sight, he stood there for two or three hours without uttering a word, sighing and mourning and weeping. And then he spoke these words. I know not. God knows. This man and king who chose to burn himself in fire rather than believe at the end of his life and serve eternal God? I know not. God knows that none of his sons shall sit on his throne as king and of his kingdom for generations to come. What is more, his line shall be subordinate forever. Having said this, he prayed, armed himself with the sign of the cross and turned around at once and went back the same way he came. Church, in conclusion, the verdicts, are in. God is the one and only true God. 
But there is a guilty verdict that brings the penalty of death. Each and every one of us this morning are guilty. But praise be to God that that's not the end of the story. If you're a believer this morning, God has granted you a pardon, a full pardon. But this pardon is different from the presidential pardon. Tim mentioned this a few weeks ago. With a presidential pardon, the guilty person walks away free. No one pays his debt. But as believers, Christ pardoned us by paying our debt in full. Christ, the perfect one, the one who knew no sin, took all of our sin upon himself on the cross at Calvary. Christ bled and died. Christ drank the entire cup of wrath that we deserve, making atonement for our sins. He was raised on the third day, victorious over death, and is now seated at the right hand of God. And get this, interceding for those who believe. Isaiah 42, verse 10 through 17 is the prophet Isaiah calling the whole world to join in with him and worshiping God for Jesus Christ. Church, we have much to sing about. What great grace has been lavished on us. He removed our unbelief and melted our hearts with gladness in God. Unbeliever, you're not watching this live stream by chance. I believe God is extending this invitation to you. I believe God has sovereignly has you listening this morning to hear the gospel, the good news. I pray that you will repent. Ask him to open your blind eyes. To soften your hard heart and to remove any unbelief and to replace that unbelief with an inexpressible joy that will last for eternity. Church, let's stand and worship the one and only true God. Thank you.